It's a joy to gather on the Lord's Day, is it not? Indeed. Open your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Now, we are still in that particularly great section of John's Gospel that runs from chapter 13 through 17. And for our visitors, we have been in a study of the Gospel of John now for two years. And we go verse by verse in order to see all that the Lord has for us through the pen of the Apostle John. And John's primary concern is with the words of Jesus Christ and the deeds that he did while he was here on earth. Specifically dealing with his eternal identity. John's gospel declares the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is in God, in, indeed God in the flesh. And we've come to these chapters now in verses 13 to 17, which are his last great discourse to his 11 faithful disciples. Judas is gone, but this night before Jesus is to die, all of the events of the chapters that have preceded us now, going back to chapter 13 and into chapter 16, are known as the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is dealing with his disciples for the last time before his crucifixion. And up until the verses before us here in chapter 15, where we arrive this morning at verse 18, Jesus has been dealing with them in, in terms of comfort. They're beside themselves, discouraged with regard to his death and departure. So he's preparing them. This night he gave them a new commandment. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for who? One another. That's what the world takes notice of, the love that the church has for one another. Now Jesus foreshadowed his ultimate act of love, which would be dying a substitutionary death on a cross by first washing the feet of the disciples earlier that night. And this being after they had argued as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Again, in John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just as is to the degree that I have loved you. Or in proportion with the way I have loved you. That's how you are to love one another. And Jesus continues to define this love by way of illustration. In verse 13... This love is displayed by laying down one's life for his friends. In verse 15, in his love for them, he refers to them as friends. No longer do I call you slaves, but you are my friends. And you are my friends if you do that which I have what? Commanded you. 
An intimate relationship here has been developed. In verse 16, another display of his saving love is that he has chosen them and that he has appointed them to go and bear fruit that is eternal. Along with the guarantee that as they minister in his name, as led by the power of the Spirit, they will pray and whatever they ask in his name, in other words, whatever they ask according to his will, the guarantee from Jesus is, is those prayers, they will be answered. Because they pray according to his word, according to his will. So the command is clear that they remain unified in love. The command for us is clear that we remain a loving congregation. As people walk in through these doors, unbelievers, that will check us out, the first thing that they ought to recognize, the first thing that they ought to take note of is the love that we have not for a lost and dying world, but most specifically, the love we have for one another. It ought to be clear because this is a unique love. So this is a responsibility that is to be taken up by God's people. A loving congregation can only be made up of individual loving Christians. This is what we must be. For a person to say, I'm a Christian, I just don't like being around Christians. Man, I've heard that so many times. I'm a Christian, I just can't stand being around them. Well, according to Scripture, they're not Christian. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. That's why we love. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So those who claim to be Christian and say, I just don't like being around Christians, that's, that's a contradiction of terms. As we abide in Christ, as Christ abides in us, we love one another because of his love for us. He initiated this love relationship. This is what we share in common. We are the bride of Christ. We are his body. This is what he's defining for his beloved 11 disciples this night. You are commanded to love one another. This is a new commandment that I give you. Just as I have loved you, go and love one another. The world will recognize you by this love. I mean, we fellowship together. We worship together. We learn to grow and to share in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that love was made manifest to the Struxness family. It's an honor to be part of this body to see that kind of love made manifest practically. This is a very loving church. So this abiding love of Christ, which manifests itself through those in Christ toward one another, has for the most part been the subject matter of chapter 15. But here in verse 18, Jesus introduces new subject matter. Look at the text, if you will. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Father, we ask now, by the leading of your Holy Spirit, you would grant us, by your grace, the capability to see the deep-rooted truth of this passage for our own lives and for the namesake of our Savior. May we be edified this morning as a body, as a church, to understand the hostility of the world, to understand what the testimony, our testimony, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ produces, that is conflict. May we be strengthened by this, may we be renewed by this, And may today, Lord, anyone here who is an unbeliever who perhaps thinks they're saved when they're not, today would be the day of their spiritual birth, we pray by your grace, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So the Lord now transitions from the topic and the charge to love one another to the topic of persecution and hostility that they will receive from the world. This is a guarantee. So Jesus has been more than clear in our previous studies that love for the body of Christ, this love for one another, is in all actuality a distinguishing mark of those who are true followers of Jesus Christ. In addition, another distinguishing mark of a genuine, authentic Christian is that he has, is hated by the world. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, the love of the Lord's brethren and the hatred of the Lord's enemies are two things to be desired, end quote. You see, hatred for Jesus Christ always has been, is today, and always will be transferred to those that are his. It is his righteousness, it's his word, it's his truth that are cause for the world's hatred. We're in the salt shaker this morning, friends. This is the salt shaker. These are God's, we are God's saints gathered together. Sinners saved by grace. That's what we are. We are his church. In here we find comfort, we find support, and we find encouragement from one another. As we ought to. However, as we go back out into the world to be salt, and to be the light that we are to be in Christ, you will encounter hostility. You will encounter resentment, mocking, and ridicule. The world is a dying carcass. It stinks. It's getting worse and worse. It's becoming more and more antagonistic against the things of God. For which there will inevitably be persecution towards us for his name's sake. Because of him. So Jesus says here with absolute certainty, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, some may say at the end of our study this morning, I never experience this. I don't believe that all Christians should experience this. But if that is your response, it is likely that those around you have no idea what you believe. And the question is, why? Why? 
If you love, if you follow, if you stand for Jesus Christ, you will become like a stranger passing through a village. And as you pass through that village, the, the dogs that are owned by the people of that village will bark at you. Spurgeon again said, if you belong to the village, the dogs would not bark at you. A disciple of Jesus Christ is like an electrical rod in a lightning storm. They will draw fire. They're going to draw heat. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that as Christians, we will encounter the same kind of hostility that Jesus Christ himself faced. This particular night before Jesus lay down on the cross, he prepared his 11 disciples how to love one another and how to be hated. He prepares them. The truth he proclaimed to them is no different for us who live 2,000 years this side of the cross. I've seen it time and time again. A person is saved by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. They go and excitedly tell their friends and their family only to be shocked and saddened as they hit a wall of hostility. I mean, every other joy that they've brought home, a new job, a, a new house, a new relationship, a new car, is, is received with enthusiasm and affirmation. Good for you, Junior, with a slap on the back. But as that same person goes back to the same friends, to the same home, saying, the Lord Jesus Christ has saved me. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Now all of a sudden they receive strange looks. Resistance. Cold indifference. And oftentimes open antagonism. This kind of hostility has often confused many a new Christian. But it shouldn't. So here in the upper room, Jesus prepares these 11 men, these 11 disenchanted, confused men, that such opposition is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. So he, he transitions by affirming that they will indeed suffer hatred, and then he follows up with the reasons why. And these are outlined for you in your bulletin. Two main points of focus. Number one, the guarantee of persecution and then secondly, the grounds for persecution, which are followed by a few subpoints. Number one, the guarantee of persecution. Look at verse 18. If the world, the world, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. It, the world, hates you. Now, in John's gospel... The, world, the word world, cosmos, from where we get the word cosmos, is used in a wide variety of ways. Sometimes in the Gospel of John, the word world can mean entire universe. Such as in John chapter 1, verse 10. It says the world was made through him, him, Jesus Christ. The world, the universe, was created through Christ. The world also refers to the physical earth. 
In John chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus knew his hour had come that he should depart out of this world or off of this earth. The world also can refer to a large group of people. In John chapter 12, verse 19, the Pharisee said, look, the world has gone after him. Look, a large group of people have gone after him. The world also refers to Jews and Gentiles. In John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't only come for the Jews, but he came for, for Greeks and Gentiles from throughout the world. The world can refer to the general public. John chapter 14, verse 22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, not to the general public. So world also can refer to the human realm. It can refer to humanity minus believers. The world in John's gospel refers sometimes to the non-elect, and at other times it refers to the elect. It totally depends upon the context of the passage. So just as the word all, we read of the word all throughout Scripture, doesn't always mean all in an all-inclusive sense. Some people say, well, all means all and world means world. No, it doesn't. In Acts 3.25, God said to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Does that mean that every single family from throughout the world will be saved? Answer, no. But all the families of the world without distinction, not just for the Jews now, but for the Jews and the Gentiles alike, all those who truly come to saving faith will receive such blessing. The seed of Abraham, the seed of faith. So just as all doesn't always mean all in an all-inclusive sense, the word world doesn't always mean world in a global sense. For instance, just as John 3.16 does not mean that God gave his son for the world without exception, because we know that not all will be saved, just as it does not mean that God gave his son for the world without exception, neither does it mean here that the whole world without exception hates Jesus and or his disciples. John 3.16, God gave the Son not only to save the Jews, but also to save Gentiles from throughout the world. So the world here, back to John 15, in verse 18, the world in context here means this. It means world system. It means world system. The whole mass of spiritual mankind that are dead in their spirituality. The whole realm of sinfully, spiritually dead mankind. Hostile to the truth. That's the world system. That's the world that he speaks about. This is the realm of evil. This is an organized system in which Satan rules. James Boyce notes the following, quote, At times, we may translate this use of cosmos as the world system, including the world's values, their pleasures, pastimes, and aspirations. It is said of the world in this sense that the world does not know God, that it rejected Jesus, and consequently that it also does not know and therefore also hates his followers. End quote. So in this sense, this is the world that is in direct opposition to God, his word, his son, and all those that follow Christ. 
That's the world he refers to. So if the world hates you, he says if, if that world, if that system hates you, this is not merely a possibility that it will, but rather an assured promise that it will. The word if here is known as a first class conditional construction, if. Which means that the first clause is assumed to be true. Or it's already in existence. So you could translate it like this. Since the world hates you, or if the world hates you, and indeed it already does, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So the assumption is that it will based upon the fact that it hated Christ first. The word hate is maliciousness. It means to detest or or to persecute with deep-seated feelings. This stuff comes down from the gut. This is hatred within, disdain for this living God that eventually comes out. The world's supreme hatred is directed at Jesus Christ because he is the only way. He declared to be the only way. He declared to be the one true God made or created in having lowered himself to become a man for which we bear the image of the God-man. We were created in his image and recreated in Christ to bear the image of what? A resurrected people. That's who we are, the church. Verse 26, Jesus said, whoever hates me hates my father. See, Jesus wasn't some mere prophet as the Muslims believe. He claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to be the only way. And that is indeed why he is hated. He is perfect righteousness. And perfect righteousness disrupts the the lives of those who live contrary to him. To believe that Jesus is anything less than the one true Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, is not only to hate Jesus, but to hate the Father also. So regardless of what they profess with their lips as to this God that they supposedly serve, they don't know God. They serve a God of their own imagination that fits their carnal nature, that supports their carnality, that supports their sinful desires. And as truth bearers of Jesus Christ, you too will be hated as you declare his, get that, his intolerant message. Broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Many people go in that way, but straight is the way and narrow is the gate and very few go in that way. He's the gatekeeper. That's an intolerant message. No, Jesus said, that it, the world system, has hated me before it hated you. Hated. Used in the perfect tense, which is a hatred that started sometime in the past and has on- ongoing implications in an uninterrupted manner. It started way back here and it's uninterrupted and it continues on, this hatred does. How far back does this hatred go? Well, we can go back to John chapter 12 and Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead, those that wanted to kill uh, Jesus now wanted to kill Lazarus because on account of Lazarus' resurrection, people were starting to believe in Jesus. He said, let's kill them both. That's hatred. 
John chapter 11, they wanted him dead. John chapter 10, they wanted him dead. John chapter 8, they wanted him dead. John chapter 7, they wanted him dead. John chapter 5, they wanted him dead. His first sermon in Galilee, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus walks into his hometown of Nazareth. He sits down. The attendant hands him the scroll. He stands up. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's the sent one. They led him out to a cliff to throw him over the side. And if you were with us in Israel, you were stood there with me as we worshiped the Lord there, as we read through scripture. That's now known as the place called Mount Precipice. You fall over that cliff today, you'll die. At the tender age of two, the ever-paranoid Herod sent out to slaughter all boys two years old and younger throughout all of Bethlehem. This is the hatred for which Jesus speaks. It is this hatred, as he speaks about this hatred, that Judas is at the present moment on his way to the Pharisees to round up a posse of the Sanhedrin and temple police and the Roman guards to go and have Jesus arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the hatred that he's talking about. You see, it's only diluted Christianity, friends, that the world will embrace. Why do you suppose that so many of the masses embrace the your best life now or the champion in you mentality? You know why? Because that's easy. Because that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the word of God. It's a mess, misrepresentation of Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's watered down. Larry King has questioned that. You know, I could tell last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we had many visitors here last Sunday. A lot of the Christers came out. They show up for Christmas and Easter. And I could tell by the countenance of many that that was the first time they had ever heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If you could see what I see. When I first started preaching publicly, the first time I preached was in front of 1,500 people four times in a day. And then every time I preached, it was in front of 12 to 1,500 people and sometimes 3,500 depending on the venue. And there people will get up, people even say things, people will give you a one-way sign and walk out, right? I mean, a large group, it just, it encourages you because you know that the truth is cut and deep. But in a small venue like this, it's a little more personal. I think it's more difficult to preach in a group this size, a couple, you know, I don't know what we have here, but like a couple hundred or less than to 1,500 or 3,000 because the countenance is almost like in your face. That's what I witnessed on Easter Sunday last week. See, the biblical Jesus, the true Jesus, the Lord of glory, the only way irritates and provokes unbelievers to the point of disdain, scorn, mockery, and hatred. That's what the true Lord causes. Question. Is this the Jesus that the world knows that you serve? Is this the Lord of glory that the people you work with and go to school with, your friends and family, do they know that you serve this Lord? 
I mean, have you ever wondered why it is that the media is not offended by the belief systems of Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Scientology, Islam, or that crazy nation of Islam? Huh? Come on now. Does it ever make you wonder? They're not mocked by liberal analysts and and, and comedians. Because they're all false religious systems. That's why they're not mocked. There's no righteous conviction there. There's no substitutionary sacrifice spoken about there. There's no God who claims to be a, have become a man who laid down his life on a cross and who rose up again and declared to be the only way. Those systems of belief don't call, declare anything like that. That is not offensive to human pride. This one is. He proved his deity by raising from the dead. So the Lord's words this night are intended here to prepare these men as well as you and myself when hostility comes. And it will. So Jesus now continues to teach the reasons why they will be hated and persecuted. He just laid it down. Look, it's a guarantee. It is guaranteed you will suffer persecution. They hated me first and they will therefore hate you. But why? Why will the world be so upset with his apostles? Why is the world system upset with you and with me just as they were with him? That leads us to grounds for persecution. Grounds for persecution number one is our separation from the world. We've been separated from that system. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Okay, but you're not, so they don't. If you were of that system, and you all were once of that system, unless you were saved at a young age and never became embedded in that system, you were of that system, and God saved you from that system. He saved you out of the world. He saved me out of their world. I'll tell you what, if you were of that system, you would get along just fine. You laugh with their jokes, you gather at their gatherings, you talk their talks around the water coolers at work. You'll get along just fine. You make the same coarse gestures with the boys, you'll get along just fine. Gossip with the girls, you'll get along just fine. You agree with their political positions, yeah, abortion is up to the woman, it's her body. You agree with gay rights, hey, just let them be what they want to be, accept whatever marriage there is. Agree with relativism, hey man, all roads lead to God, I believe in Jesus, but if you believe in Muhammad, hey man, we'll meet in the end. Wrong. Wrong. If you believe that, no fire, no heat, no conflict, I will doubt your Christianity. Everything will be just fine. No strife, no disagreements, no righteous standard. But we have been separated from that system. Called out. He's given us life in Christ. New life. Galatians 2, verse 20. I, Paul said, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for for me. We're no longer on their path. We're going in opposite directions and that causes friction. You're cutting against the grain. 
dead fish float downstream. You were a dead fish. I was a dead fish floating downstream, but God came and caused you to be born again. You turned around and now you're heading upstream because your citizenship is in heaven. Not to earn salvation, but because you're saved. So he's removed us from the interest of worldly things. You know, the world sets its minds on the affections of the things of the world. They have no love or commitment for the creator of the world, though. They love the things of the world and they hate the creator of the world. Today, I heard is save the planet day. Gee, I should have wore my green tie. (laughs) The earth was given to man to have dominion over the earth. Not to abuse the earth, to have dominion over it. The earth is for us. It's a gift of God. If it sets on fire, guess who caused it to set on fire? God did, as Peter said. It's being preserved by the very word of God. It was preserved by the word of God to be flooded and it's being preserved by the word of God to be destroyed by fire. Globally. We were slaves of it. We've been set free from it. Galatians 4, 6. God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you're no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Through Christ. You're no longer subject to this system. See, the world has no fear. They have no love for God within themselves. They're driven by their sin nature. They're lovers of self. So they create this God in their own image to accommodate their sinful desires. That's what religion does. This God, the one true God, chafes. So what's the result of such polar opposite passions? You know what it is? Conflict. Conflict. So you mustn't be surprised by this, beloved. Your co-workers... Hate you because you have a Bible on your desk. Your family members can't stand you because every time you get together at Thanksgiving, you talk about this Jesus. 1 John 3, verse 13 says this, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Modern translation, don't be tripping if this system, come on, I can be hip. Don't be tripping out if these folks hate you because of Jesus Christ. Many of you have experienced this, amen? Or you ought to, in some form or fashion. A great illustration of this was given to me this week. A dear friend of mine has a daughter. She's an adult as well. And she was speaking with her daughter. and She says, hey, I'm going to go over to my friend's house and watch a movie can I kind of see some of the movies that you have and maybe fish through them and find a good movie to go watch with my friends? So her daughter brings out these movies and throws them out on the table. She's kind of shuffling through them and there's one that passes in front of her and it's uh, title, entitled um, Sex in the City. She goes, well, look at this. And she goes, I definitely don't want that one. This is how the unbelieving daughter responded. You see, you Christians make me sick. You think that you're so much better than everyone else. You don't even know what that movie's about. Well, dear, I I don't need to know what the movie's about. The title alone, Sex and the City, I know I don't want to watch that one. 
See, this is the rage. This is the rage for which Jesus is speaking about here. Our other-mindedness. Our other-mindedness from their worldly-mindedness is what strikes blows. Jesus Christ. They'll unleash on us who are no longer of their worldliness because of their hatred for Christ. Be not surprised. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. So why is it that these 11 men, why is it that my friend, why is it that you, why is it that I am no longer of this world? Okay, that's the grounds for persecution is that you're not of this world. Why are we no longer of this world? Number two, grounds for persecution number two, because of sovereign election. He's chosen us out of it. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this. This what? The fact that I chose you out of it. Because of this, the world hates you. Jesus' followers have been described back in chapter 13, verse 1, as his own people. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The end? The cross. He chose you out of this world. He loved you to the end, the end of which was Calvary. The cross, he laid down his life for you. He redeemed you. He bought you back at a great price. He atoned for your sin. He grants you positional righteousness. Made manifest by having chosen you out of that system. That's the proof. He chose them. The word chose means to select. It means to pick out. To pick out of the world his own people. Therefore, they no longer belong to that system. That's exactly what the word church means, beloved. Ecclesia, it means called out ones. He called you out of that system. We're in the salt shaker. We've all been called out by grace. If indeed you're in Christ, you've been called out. You're his beloved. You are his bride. Sinners saved by grace. And guess what? You cannot at any time, at any time whatsoever, take credit for this offense. You know, many people go out, ooh, rough day today. It's persecuted for the name of Jesus. Boy, I'm something. You can't take credit for that. He chose you for what? For his good pleasure. He's transformed you. The world looked on these 11 men as aliens. And that's exactly how they treated him. You're alien. I'm an alien. We are aliens passing through. We are sojourners. Our citizenship is in heaven. Is in heaven. This is nothing new for the disciples. A dying and unbelieving world has always hated the one true God. Isaiah 49, 7 says this. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him who the nation abhors, 
to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. He has chosen you. So hostility towards believers is simply, in a roundabout kind of way, an authentic credibility of our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. So you can rest in this. Trust, trust in Christ because of things like this. People see what we hope they see, which is Christ in us, amen? That's what we want them to see. Genuine faith will, without a doubt, stir up hostility in others. It's going to happen. So our profession of faith in Jesus Christ, along with our lives that validate this profession, will cause the hatred of the world against Christ to be expressed towards you. Now, this is not consent to go out and act obnoxious in the name of Jesus, amen? Or to act like an idiot like some people do. Forgive me for using the word idiot, but some people act like idiots. Those are the guys that come up pulling up their waist, their belt, got persecuted for Jesus. Well, you're a moron. You're a lunatic out there. It's not a wonder. You know, if I, I would have probably persecuted you. <laughs> you know, when you stand with that bullhorn and, and, and as people walk by, you come six inches from their ear and go, repent or you're going to go to hell. Come on. There's nothing wrong with proclaiming the gospel with a bullhorn. So long as you just proclaim the gospel. Some people are called to do that. You're not necessarily called to stand on a soapbox and go down to Mission Beach. Some people do, and that's fine, and that's great. The point is being a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, and when given opportunity, be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. Truth is truth. The gospel is offensive enough, amen? The point is that we don't add to the offense by acting like a bunch of lunatics, You know, some people take on this self-martyr complex. Oh, just persecuted again. Well, I don't have any friends out there. Well, it's not a wonder. Your weird doctrine, doctrinal positions, your strange behavior, it's not a wonder. Now, the flip side is also true. If we profess Jesus Christ and are comfortable in the world... Or moreover, if the world's comfortable with us, then we have every right to be concerned with the legitimacy of the salvation that we claim to possess. Are you with me? If we meet no worldly opposition whatsoever at any given time, it may be that we're not being true to the offense of the cross. And it is offensive. People wanted to stand up last week. I could tell. Boy, could I tell. I knew a couple of them personally. I'll tell you. You know, I've met many said believers who seem to be constantly at strife with other believers. They always have an issue with other believers, the ones that they're supposed to be loving as themselves. Contradicting the words of Jesus in verse 12. And the words of Christ in chapter 13, verse 35. Yet all the while, as they have all this strife with believers, they're buddied up with the world. They have no strife 
with the unbelieving world whatsoever. They go camping together, they hang out together, everything's fun together, everything's rah-rah together. But the question is, do they even know that you're in Christ? That's very concerning. True life in Jesus Christ is radically contradictory to life in the world. James chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, having been separated from this world system, for the reason that we've been chosen by God out of that world system, we therefore have something that gives us a way. Okay, you've been removed from that system. We know why. It's because you've been chosen out of that system. Now there's a distinction. And the world recognizes it. What is it? It's this. It's a new identity. It's a new identity. Grounds for persecution number three is our identity with Christ. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, remember here, he says, a slave is not greater than his master. This is simply the repeated teaching of Jesus from chapter 13, verse 13 to 16, where Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do just as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So there in John chapter 13, which is an argument from the greater to the lesser, he uses this to lead them down in greater humility. Servanthood. That love for one another that he talked about. And he also uses it to point out the certainty of persecution because of his name. They'll experience it because of him. He prepares them. We also see this in Matthew chapter 10. You can just mark this down, verse 24. A disciple's not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his house hold? Accusation against Christ. When Christ cast out demons from men, the religious leaders of the day accused him of doing it in the power of Satan. They were basically saying he's Satan incarnate. False accusations. The enemies of Christ will actually believe themselves to be doing good as they reject those who are truly in Christ. The Jewish Talmud says this. He who sheds the blood of a Christian is equal to him who brings offerings to God. The Romans believe that by executing Christians, that they were offering an acceptable sacrifice to their gods. In the annals of Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian, it's recorded that Christians were charged with the hatred of the human race. What is it they hated? The world system. 
Christians hate the world system. And because we hate the world system, because we've been called out of that system, chosen out of that system, transformed, they therefore hate the one who brought us out of that system. So they blame us for hating, hating human beings. You just are haters of people. Intolerant. That's an unloving message. The Muslim's Quran reads this. Fight in the cause of Allah those who fight you. Slay them whenever ye catch them and turn them out. Such is the reward of those who reject faith. Fight them on until there is no more persecution and the religion becomes Allah's. They think they're doing God a favor. Look over at chapter 16 across the page, verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. That's exactly what happened to these 11. It died some brutal deaths for the name of their Savior. So this reality that was reality for them in its purest form, it hasn't changed one bit. If Jesus, the master of the house, drank the cup of persecution, so will his slaves, i.e. his servants. And however the world treated him is how the world will treat us by various expressions. I mean, it's doubtful that you'll be crucified on a cross. It's doubtful that I'll be crucified on a cross upside down like Peter was. It's doubtful that we will be put in a, a vat of boiling oil like the apostle John was. It's doubtful that you'll be choked up and tied up to a stake and burned alive like William Tyndale was for translating the Bible into English. It's doubtful that I'll be thrown into prison for 12 years as John Bunyan was, commanded not to preach the truth. But then again, that day may come. We'll have someone up here in my place till I get out. And I'll do it again. But you can expect some form of persecution for your faith. Because our identity draws it out. Our new identity in Christ draws out that hostility. You look like him to the world. In what way? How do we look like him to the world? Because of this, we actually take on the character traits of our master. Now, we naturally emulate those that we aspire to be like. Amen? Sports figures, you know, kids dress crazy like they do because they're trying to emulate people that they are fans of or whatever. The whole emo scene and all these tight clothes and ripped up look ridiculous. But that's the whole emo scene. They're trying to emulate those people, right? I tried to emulate certain people when I was a young freak in my 20s. And I was a freak as lost as you could be, but by God's grace, I stand here today. Today, I try to emulate the best preachers of preachers. So I have to listen to the best preachers of preachers. I have to read the best preachers of preachers because I have such a long way to go. I emulate, I want to emulate certain things that they do and that they have done to communicate the word of God with clarity for the glory of God and for the edification of his people. But this is different. There's something with regard to our relationship with Jesus Christ that is much deeper here 
in taking on these character traits than just trying to emulate Jesus. It's not the incommunicable or the intransitive attributes of God. Those are his and those are his alone. Such as his self-existence, his immutability, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his infinity, and his omniscience. Those are his. You'll never share in those things. However, his communicable or his transitive attributes are possessed by those in a limited sense who are in Christ. That's you. That's me. Such as holiness. That's transferred to us by grace. Wisdom, compassion, truthfulness, benevolence, Christ-likeness. We take on those attributes because we're in Christ. Now, for a, for a beautiful illustration of this, turn to Matthew chapter 5. It was our opening reading this morning. And notice, this is Jesus' Galilean ministry. His fame has gone out throughout the land. There's just tens of thousands of people following him around. In verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay, now if you go back to verse 3 here, he begins with poor in spirit. Poor, to be poor in spirit is the opposite of self-reliance. It's the opposite of self-confidence. It's the opposite of self-assurance. It's the opposite of self-righteousness. To be poor in spirit is to come to God on your face as a spiritual beggar. You know, you realize at this point that you have nothing to offer God you're spiritually bankrupt and you know it. This is the words of Isaiah made manifest. Woe is me, for I am a man who is what? Undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Utter brokenness. And a man who's utterly broken, poor in spirit, will naturally mourn over his sin because he sees his sin now as God sees it and he realizes by sovereign divine grace that he sinned against that holy God. He mourns over his sin because he's broken and he finds comfort in the comforter. That is an emptying out. That is the product of having been born again of the Spirit. Having been born again, someone comes poor in spirit because they've been born again. They mourn over their sin because they've been born again. And then after this emptying out, look at the infilling. They become gentle or meek. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not spinelessness. This is the meekness that our Lord manifest in his earthly ministry. They, be, they become to, they desire to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is just something that goes on and on. They hunger and they thirst for this righteousness of Christ. It's satisfying, but yet never completely satisfied. They become more merciful. Why? Oh, because we've been forgiven so much. Because we've been forgiven so much, we ourselves become merciful. Notice we become pure in heart. This is a desire within, not just to appear as 
you know, a Christianese Christian. But deep down inside, purity of heart. We become peacemakers. Not a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper just wants to have conflict cease. You can take two gangs, take the guns out of their hands, and say, hey, we're going to have a truce for a couple weeks, and we're going to clean up the parks and show everybody that the blood in the crypts can get along. Rah, rah. Well, what hasn't been removed is the hatred out of their hearts. The guns are gone, the hatred's still there, and in a couple weeks they'll be killing one another again. That's being a peacekeeper. A peacemaker is one who brings the true gospel of Jesus Christ to those that are at enmity with God and a God who's at war with them and they bring this truth which is the only peace that can be provided for their soul. By way of what? Grace. There's no peace without grace. The product of saving grace is peace with God. So you become these things by God's grace and then notice the consequence of such an identity. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of what? Righteousness. For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Such is the case with those broken in spirit. Those poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. They become like Christ. And in turn, they receive persecution in the name of Christ. Theirs is heaven. They're children of the kingdom. Notice the nature of the persecution and the cost of discipleship. In other words, those who live up to the first seven Beatitudes are guaranteed to experience at some level Beatitude number eight. Godliness generates antagonism from this world system. Hostility. This is the cost of true discipleship. Following Jesus Christ may mean ridicule for you, mocking, Abuse, and to some, death. Death. I get this magazine, Voice of the Martyrs. It's amazing what goes on around the world. You will never, ever hear that on CNN. Ever. Those being persecuted for the namesake of Jesus Christ. Order Voice of the Martyrs. It's a thin magazine. It's amazing. Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, it's been granted to you to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So here we see the nature of the persecution. Notice the anticipation of physical persecution. To be persecuted. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. The word persecute has the basic meaning of, of chasing away, driving away, or in other words, to pursue. Persecute, to pursue with connotations of, of abuse and harassment. Now, this, it's at this point, friends, when we're pursued like this, that we will be tempted, okay, tempted to compromise that for which we have hungered and thirsted for, righteousness. The temptation will come to compromise now. You'll be at a ball game with your friends. You're at a basketball game or you're at a concert or something with your friends from work. You want to be one of the guys, yeah, you're trying hard. I want to be the light, Lord. I want to be righteous. And, and, and we do need to be that light. We need to have unbelieving friends. But may we have influence on them and them not on us. 
So there you are. You've been praying. I, I hunger and I thirst for righteousness. You're seeing this prayer answered. And all of a sudden, here comes, here comes the temptation. Here comes the trial. You're at the game. There's five of you there. And here comes down the line a big old fat doobie. Marijuana cigarette. Everyone's hitting off it. Pressure, 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 pressure. So you take a Bill Clinton hit. <laughs> yeah, you didn't inhale. Right? But pressure is on now at this point. It's going to happen. Things like that. Notice the expectancy of verbal insult. Verse 11. Blessed are when people insult you. The word insult carries the idea of of, of reviling with serious insult. Like in your face. Serious Abusive words. It also means to viciously mock you. Perhaps you've experienced that before. Jesus did. Matthew 26, verse 67. And then they spat in his face, and they beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who, the one, who it is the one who struck you, as he was blindfolded. Notice the foreseeing a false accusation. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of who? Because of me. Enemies of the gospel will not only insult you with abrasive words in your face, but will also and primarily speak falsely against you behind your backs. Matthew eleven eighteen. For John came, John the Baptist, neither eating nor drinking, and they said that he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they said about John. That's what they said about Jesus. Now, slander is certainly harder to defend than open accusations in your face. No doubt about it. But remember, Jesus said such slander is because of who? It's because of me because of me rejoice in that 2 Timothy 3.12 says this yes yes and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution the illuminating light of Jesus Christ through you through me is like a mirror in the face of those who hate God to where they see themselves as they really are. Separated from God. There's a story of an African chief, tribal chief, and in this case a woman, who happened to visit a mission station. And hanging outside the missionary's cabin on a tree was a little mirror the chief happened to look into the mirror and saw her reflection with its hideous paint and evil features. She gazed at her own terrifying countenance and jumped back in horror, exclaiming, who is that horrible-looking person inside that tree? Oh, the missionary said, it's not in the tree. The glass is reflecting your own face. The African would not believe it until she held the mirror in her hand. 
She said, I must have the glass. How much will you sell it for? Oh, the missionary said, I don't want to sell it. But she begged until he capitulated. She took the mirror, exclaiming, I will never have it making faces at me again. So she threw it down and broke it into pieces. That's exactly what the Jews did with Jesus. They were religious leaders. He revealed their religious hypocrisy because of his utter righteousness, the standard. Tragically, it often happens today. We at one time hated to see ourselves as we really are. (laughs) The world, the world system does not want to see themselves as they really are. So a good look at Jesus results either in abiding hatred towards him or love for him, but by grace. And the people that react in such a way towards Christ will in turn react towards you in the same way because of his light, his reflection. So to conclude, we end on an upswing. Although the majority will mock, the masses will resist, the Lord in the midst of it all has chosen some as recipients of his glorious truth, the same glorious truth that saved you, that saved me. We just don't know who they are, do we? We don't know who they are until God converts them. So we herald that truth to all. And Jesus concludes here in this portion, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So there will be those in his appropriate timing who will come to saving faith by hearing the same message that you heard. There's one gospel. There's one way to be saved. We carry out that truth into the mission field. Your work, your families, your homes, your little clubs and your gyms and our gyms and our places, everywhere we go, we are missionaries with this message. And God will enable some to believe as they hear the word and receive the word and repent and believe upon that word. And the word is Jesus Christ. He's the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He said, some will keep the word. Keep means to accept it. First and foremost, you accept it. Secondly, you obey it. And then thirdly, you stand guard over it. Keep. John 8, 51 says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Believers, you will never see death. Your body will see death. You will never see death. The moment this thing goes, you are in the presence of Christ, the glorified Christ. Those who don't know him will die a second death. Three reminders. First, persecution is the immediate fate of all genuine believers. Persecution is the immediate fate of all genuine believers. Momentary affliction is inevitable. But remember Romans 8.18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time, 
They're not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Secondly, persecution is confirmation of genuine Christianity. Some form of persecution, some level, somehow, some disdain, is simply a validation of the real deal. Question, are you easily identified as a follower of Jesus Christ? Or would your co-workers be surprised to discover that you're a Christian? Would they be surprised that you're here today? Church. Thirdly, persecution, brothers and sisters, is never, ever in vain. It's never in vain. The gospel's the power of salvation to all who what? All who believe. In the midst of the persecution, we will see some come to saving faith. We take that seed of truth, some plant, some water, but only God can bring forth that great harvest. We're in the salt shaker. That's the mission field. His message is our message, and that message is the only message that declares the one true God, that He's the one true way that only He can save. And if you declare that message, that is very offensive. He's offensive so you'll be offensive. Because he's offensive. So rejoice and be exceedingly glad, brethren. If they persecuted me, will they not persecute you? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward here in this world system? No. In heaven. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, once again, we're humbled when we face the reality of all that our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, bore on our behalf. The ridicule that He took upon Himself. The shame that He took upon Himself. The mocking, the beating, the scourging, the flogging. And then, above all, to take upon himself your wrath. So that to us would be imputed his very righteousness. Lord, I pray um, that you will um, remind us of this glorious truth this week. I pray that your dear people here this morning would be um, greatly encouraged. Lord, those who've been suffering persecution at work because they do their job as unto you and they be, are mocked for that because they're not willing to cut corners, because they see it as a stewardship unto you, I pray that they'll be encouraged. I pray that those would be encouraged who are suffering persecution from family members, neighbors, co-workers, whoever it may be. Pray that you'll grace us, Father, to um, live out your truth, not to be obnoxious, but to be truth bearers, living righteous lives, standing arm in arm, loving one another, always prepared to receive uh, the hatred that this world system will throw our way, but always at the same time remembering that it's really pointed to you.
and that ultimately we can only be strengthened by it. And Lord, for those who sit here this morning heavily convicted, perhaps feeling condemned, I pray that uh, the condemnation would be taken away and that there be conviction where there needs to be conviction, but there'll be a certainty of your saving grace in their hearts and in their lives that uh, they would simply resort to focusing on abiding in Christ so that the love of Christ would be made manifest in them and through them and through all of us. That our walks, Lord, our, our testimony of you and your goodness and your power and your grace and of your message would, would abound in Holy Spirit power in us and through us. So may they be encouraged. For anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, I, I pray that they'll see that perhaps they don't receive any type of persecution because they're not yours in the first place. And I pray that today would be the day that great conviction was brought forth that your Holy Spirit is working in their hearts to bring them to the point of repentance, to actually mourn over their sin as they see their sin as you see it, that they would fall in broken repentance, poor in spirit. That they too would share in what we have been blessed to share in. A new identity in Christ for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.